Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds, September 13th, 2017, um, in September. And um, it goes without saying, but, but I have to say it, that you all performed, and many who aren't here in the room remarkably, yesterday afternoon um, from the ambulatory clinics that I saw evacuate very smoothly and easily and quickly uh, without panic and reassured patients and even saw some patients and completed visits in parking lots and over at Colburn Hill where AVSs were printed uh, to the Five East inpatient unit which hosted 59 people in a, in a secure unit um, for, the, for the time there and provided care. PICU welcomed the adult neighbors from Three East next door and barricaded and locked the doors and provided care to a number of highly acute critically ill patients with uh, with uh, a mix of a mix of folks, there was a physician in every single unit. Painfree had two patients down in MRI under sedation, and anesthesiologists recovered each of them. One anesthesiologist recovered each of them in the setting, one after the imaging, and one without performing the imaging. Without saying, um, Dr. Van Hoff left tumor board to get to the cancer center to make sure his chemo patients were safe. Ended up playing some games on the floor with a two-year-old. Um, and then um, life rushed back in as of 510 when all the units sort of got up and running again. And thanks to Jessica LaPearl for remembering, it was about 520, and those kitchen ovens were turned off at 130 or 145 when they evacuated the cafeteria. So she made sure to order pizza for all the units, including the ICN where the staff and the moms were going to be hungry. Of course, ICN also locked down and uh, did its thing. So... Um, those who want to hear more will certainly, noontime, Dr. Conroy will update us, although probably everyone's read the New Valley News by now and CNN and the Boston Globe, so I don't know if there's much more detail, but I'm sure there'll be many more debriefings and learnings as we go forward, but, um, but thank you and give your all, yourselves all a round of applause, or not if you don't feel like it. <laughs> so... Um, but as a 24-7 institution, and as the, as the email said last night, operations are returned to normal, and uh, that includes our grand rounds. And Dr. Ralston has uh, welcomed, no surprise, a uh, speaker in bronchiolitis to join us from north of the border. And I'll uh, invite Sean to introduce Dr. Shu. Thanks, Keith. Um, I'm really, really pleased to be able to um, introduce Dr. Suzanne Chu. She is a personal hero of mine in um, bronchiolitis research. She has done so many of the seminal articles on, um, uh, you know, that have sort of changed our management. She, um, I first became aware of her work um, when she did a study on the utility of use of chest X-ray in the emergency room. And um, she's here, though, to present a study that I think is probably the single most brilliant study done ever on bronchiolitis. <laughs> and uh, I'm not going to say that much more, uh, except that she uh, practices in the emergency department um, at um, SickKids in Toronto. And please give her a really warm welcome. So you can be seen better and maybe adjust that. Oh, good morning, everyone. Thank you, uh, Sean, for that very uh, generous introduction. My head circumference has just expanded by 300%. So good morning, everyone. So today we are going to talk about uh, the use of oximetry in bronchiolitis. And you may be aware that this is uh, actually a highly controversial topic. Um, um, 
this is uh, an, a number of people, as I'm sure you know, uh, are actually religiously devoted to the use of oximetry. Uh, and in this era of choosing wisely, uh, this is probably one use of technology that needs to be critically looked at in terms of how wisely we are actually uh, looking at, uh, how we are actually using it. Uh, now let's see how this, okay, so today hopefully you are going to get a little bit of an insight into the limitations of the oximetry measurement. And I'll walk you through some of the studies that are starting to critically look at the uh, retrofit use of oximetry. In other words, how should we use it perhaps a little bit more discriminately? And when may oximetry be a little bit more useful? We'll brainstorm a little bit uh, about this at the end. Um, so just imagine yourself during a cold month of December, uh, in the middle of the night you are working in the emergency department, and you get a very cute four-month-old little boy who arrives at midnight with the first episode of wheeze and respiratory distress. And this is a typical history for bronchiolitis, so you hear that this kid has had a runny nose and a cough for the last two days, and for the last 24 hours has had increasing respiratory distress. And when you look at him, he's very well hydrated, he's alert, and vital signs are as described there. He has a low-grade fever, and, is ox and because you subscribe to the religion of oximetry, you already have oxygen, you already have oxygen saturation measured, and it's 94% in room air. The child has mild to moderate retractions in the chest, and a noisy chest with crackles and wheeze. So he's fed in the ED, and he feels like a horse. Um, and mom says that his follow-up is available tomorrow. So, okay, so you have done your bit, so I would like you to vote as to what is your most likely action at this point. So you educate the parents about bronchiolitis, you explain to them what to expect. So who would give this kid supplemental oxygen? <laughs> yes? Uh, okay. We have a little bit to talk about. Um, who would offer to this child any of the um, pharmacotherapy that has frequently been given uh, traditionally to kids with bronchiolitis? Not very many. Very good, Sean. Um, <laughs> now, and who, would, and who would admit this child to hospital? Okay, excellent. Now I can tell you are in the bronchiolitis mecca. <laughs> very, very good. Okay, now you get called off to the resuscitation room to see a very, another very ill child with bronchiolitis who cannot be sent home. And you, you are there for about half an hour or 45 minutes, and so you, you haven't quite sent him home yet, and you come back to discharge the patient, and heaven forbid the kid falls asleep. You know, children do that. This is kind of sad. Um, and so you hear a noise from the oxygen saturation monitor, and it is very loud. It beeps and beeps and beeps, and the parents' eyes are staring at the monitor. And so these monitors can get there, because the oxygen saturation is now reading 87% in room air. So you look at the chart, and he's exactly the same as he was before. His vital signs are the same. They are unchanged, he still looks his well-hydrated self, and he still has mild to moderate retractions. So, you have written your discharge instructions and you see this. So what would you do? So I've put, put down some options. 
So who would turn off the oximeter, um, discharge the child as planned, and arrange for follow-up the next day with detailed instructions for the patient. Okay, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I can see that your arms seem to be a little bit weak. So, <laughs> okay, so put your arms up. Who would do, okay, good. Okay, excellent. Who would wake the boy up, shake him a little bit? Um, uh, um, document a higher saturation because this is what is going to happen and discharge the child with follow-up the next, aha. We have a lot to talk about. Okay, and who would admit this kid for supplemental oxygen while he is asleep? Okay, so it's interesting. I did not, by the way, make up number two. Um, this is actually a practice at some of the hospitals uh, in Canada, um, uh, where, in fact, if they see a low sad, they shake the kid up. You know, the child wakes up, the saturation goes up. The fact that in 10 minutes later it goes down again when they fall asleep <laughs> some, somehow escapes them, but that's okay. We'll talk about that. Okay. So, um, okay, good. Now, this is a second case. This is another cute four-month-old boy who also comes in December with a typical history of bronchiolitis. But this one looks a lot sicker. So he's tired, and mom says that for the last 12 hours, he has taken almost no feeds because he just concentrates on feeding, and he's huffing and puffing, and he's kind of look, ugh. And at times, he stares into space. Um, the vital signs are as there, so he's significantly more tachypneic, and he also has a low-grade fever. His oxygen saturation is 100% in room air. So your colleague says, well, you know, isn't it nice that his sat is 100%? He does have nasal flaring, by the way, uh, in addition to his retractions. So what would you do with him? Uh, who would vote for some um, possibility of IV hydration? You, again, paralyzed arms. Okay, so, <laughs> IV hydration? <laughs> okay, NG, okay, NG or IV hydration? Okay, fine. Okay, so, some form of hydration. Okay, so who would do a chest x-ray, by the way, just sort of for fun? Okay, good, well-trained. <laughs> and who would, who would consider admitting this kid? Yeah, I think at the end of, this, of the day, you know, one thing about bronchiolitis is that that's not really what I came here to talk about. But one thing about bronchiolitis is that you can usually, usually make a fairly immediate disposition decision in the sense that this kid is probably not get, going to get better, like asthmatic mild over the next four or five hours. So this kid probably needs to come in, despite the saturation of 100%, very likely. Okay. So um, you all know that bronchiolitis is a very common and expensive disease, and it is the leading cause of infant hospitalizations, which is costing a ton of money, not just in the United States, but uh, in uh, developed countries in general around the world. Um, what is interesting is that the hospitalization rate, especially between 1980s and mid-2000s, have actually almost tripled. Uh, with the um, uh, mortality for bronchiolitis being virtually the same. Um, so you have come to realize, because we are now in the uh, place of the MECAF bronchiolitis guidelines, uh, thanks to Sean, 
Um, we know that the various poisons for uh, bronchiolitis have not been shown to, to, to actually do much good. So the guidelines recommend supportive measures and advised again use of various poisons and tests in the emergency department. So we are basically reduced in terms of evidence-based medicine to providing oxygenation, hydration, and if necessary, various forms of airway support. When you look at the literature back to 1956, so this is a few years ago, um, Dr. Reynolds actually published a paper in the Journal of Pediatrics, and if you read it, you'll find that the principles of managing bronchiolitis in 1956 were actually not very different than they are right now. Uh, they did not use the various poisons, and they did not have high-flow nasal cannula, which is very much in fashion now. However, uh, we have come a long way to basically discover the basics, so to speak. Okay, so why are the admissions for bronchiolitis going up? So there is really no evidence that the, the disease is more common. There is just as many visits to the, uh, to the primary care providers and to the emergency departments, nor is there any evidence of increasing disease severity. The, morbid, the mortality for bronchiolitis is exactly the same. So there are more kids that, come, that have daycare because every mother now works. And there is a better prognosis for premature babies, uh, for better or worse sometimes. But having said that, this is just a small component. So the experts agree that the routine measurement of oximetry uh, is probably the major cause for increasing the hospitalizations in bronchiolitis. Um, and so oximetry has been routine since about mid-1980s. And you know, it's a very cool, non-invasive measure of a uh, uh, way to measure oxygen saturation. It's non-invasive, it's just very simple, and it spits out a number. And people love numbers. This is just, this quantifies somehow the state that the child is in. And so the routine use of oximetry has actually been associated with the changes in management of bronchiolitis. And we have actually um, changed the hospitalization criterion over the years due to our interpretation of the oximetry numbers. There is a very cool editorial by Dr. Bergman, who actually uh, wrote an editorial in response to Alan Schroeder's paper, where he wrote that we have come to worship at the shrine of numbers. And that in the numbers, the truth is somehow revealed. I think that was written with a bit of a sarcasm. <laughs> so what is some of the key evidence for the devotion to oximetry? So uh, I love to quote the study by Dr. Mallory uh, from um, 2003, where he sent out hypothetical vignettes to his co about 500 pediatricians across the United States. And this was a case scenario typical for bronchiolitis where he varied two components. He varied the respiratory rate and the oxygen saturation. And so he had a saturation of 92 versus 94% and the respiratory rate of 48 versus 68. So very different respiratory rates. And the difference in saturation was between 92 and 94%. And he found that in fact going from 94 to 92% doubled the hospitalization rate or hypothetical hospitalization rate from 40% to 83%. A huge increase from going from 94 to 92. Uh, this difference, by the way, as you'll find out in a minute, is within the error of the monitor. Okay, so... Uh,
there was no difference between the respiratory rate of 48 versus 68. That somehow <coughs> escaped the people. But, um, but the saturation was the big deal. So that was the first study. Um, a year later, Alan Schroeder published an inpatient study where he looked at what were the factors associated with discharge home and how long did the patient stay in the inpatient unit. And he found that more than a quarter of the inpatients remain in hospital for an extra 1.6 days. So this is actually a lot of money um, when you consider the frequency of bronchiolitis. Due to low saturations alone after other parameters, clinical parameters have been stabilized. So th this is probably, again, because children sleep in hospitals, and that's a very, very bad thing to do <laughs> because, they, because they drop their saturations and ha, ha, ha. They had to be kept in, right? The, the, the buzzers went and bells went and so on and so on. Okay. So those were some of the early studies. So let's just reflect a little bit on what hypoxemia is. So we know that this is some sort of a decrease in the partial pressure of oxygen in the blood. And from your days of kindergarten, and perhaps in medical school, you may remember this big S-shaped hemoglobin, oxyhemoglobin desaturation curve. Um, and uh, you also remember that, so this basically quantifies the relationship between the partial pressure of oxygen and oxygen saturation. And you also remember that once your saturation drops below 90%, your partial pressure of oxygen starts going down relatively quickly. Now, having said that, this somehow led the people or the mankind to believe that once, that somehow once your oxygen saturation even approaches 90%, or heaven forbid goes slightly below 90%, that that critically compromises, and the, word, the key word here is critically, critically compromises your tissue oxygenation, including your brain. So once it goes to 91, 89, 88%, your brain just might get fried. This, okay, we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, what is interesting is that the various guidelines do not actually tell us what is a definition of hypoxemia. You know, what does it actually mean? You know, we talk about 90%, but it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a number. Okay. So in terms of the use of supplemental oxygen for bronchiolitis, this is actually all over the place. So the, uh, the 2014 guidelines, these are all very carefully, politically carefully worded, that the physicians may consider you know, this, this wording, may consider not using supplemental oxygen for saturations 90% plus in otherwise healthy children. So this is actually, this only applies to otherwise healthy children. Um, across the Atlantic in Great Britain, the British National Institute for Clinical Excellence, I find that a very interesting title, um, they liked 92%. And um, now since Dr. Cunningham did his uh, BITS trial, um, the Na British National Society, which like, used to like 94%, has now switched to 9%. I don't know if they have actually switched or whether they are in the process of switching to 90%. However, the bottom line is that if you look at the use of oxygen around the world, there is still a huge practice variation. And people like various numbers. Um, you know, some like 90, some like 93. Exactly where these numbers come from would be interesting to find. But there's really no evidence that these thresholds predict progression of disease from relatively mild bronchiolitis to severe bronchiolitis. Um, 
Even more sadly, there is no evidence that oximetry use as such has improved outcomes in bronchiolitis at all. So if you imagine any oximeter that you, tap, that you wrap around the kid's finger, the, the error of the measurement around any, any number is actually plus or minus 2%. So when you actually get a 92, let's say, it may be anywhere from 90 to 94 at any given time. Uh, and the error goes up as your saturation measurement goes down. So once you are in the neighborhood of 88, the, it, it, it's wider. Um, now, the other problem, of course, is that these alarms are loud and we tend to get fed up with them and we tend to ignore them because there is various alarms usually for other reasons as well, especially in the emergency department. It can get quite loud and disturbing. So, oh, this is another one. Let's just turn it off and, you know, let's ignore it and so on. So there's actually literature that hypothesizes that perhaps too many alarms lead to less careful clinical monitoring, which is something to keep in mind. Um, I always find it fascinating that physiologically speaking, um, you actually desaturate quite routinely in certain situations. So when the child is in the car seat, that is one situation. And in fact, there's now research, you know, this, you may be aware of this routine car seat test that the children cannot leave until they pass whatever test. Not that I know much about the test. All I know is that they are now discovering that it's not very useful. Um, every time you fly on the plane, you are going to desaturate. And I always wanted to do a study on the plane of babies that fly long distances across the Pacific or something like that, because they would drop into low 90s very, very easily. And heaven forbid, if they have a cold or bronchiolitis, it would go much, much lower. The, the British Medical Society allows you to fly, by the way, if your saturation is 85% or higher. Now, this is, I presume, not with acute conditions, but still, um, they are a bit more permissive. So. So you desaturate on the plane routinely. However, because nobody measures it, everybody is very happy. Um, uh, the same is true of altitude, and it is very much true of sleep. So healthy children, when they fall asleep, especially under the age of six months, so the younger you are, the more likely you are to desaturate when you sleep. And when you are sick, of course, you are more likely, and you'll hear more about desaturations during sleep in a minute. So those of us that... Um, desaturate and don't know it are all very, very happy indeed. Okay. Now, what about the impact of oximetry? So I told you already that there is an almost between 250 and 300% increase in hospitalization since 1980s with unchanged mortality. So some people have come to hypothesize that less ill children are now actually being admitted without for bronchiolitis without measurable benefit. And this may be actually driven by increased diagnosis of hypoxemia or, per or perceived hypoxemia with a hypothesis that somehow saturation is a critical component of their disease severity. And uh, so the question is, are we using oximetry as a supplement to our judgment or perhaps not. Um, so, uh, so the more you monitor, the, the more you look, the more you find out. And the question is, is it actually improving patient outcomes? And so far, there is certainly no such evidence. Um, so this is the first study I wanted to talk about, which um, Sean had alluded to. So um, um, this was a paper published in JAMA uh, three years ago where we actually did a randomized control trial. 
And these were patients that were previously healthy with their first episode of bronchiolitis under the age of one year, um, who were, um, uh, who had either true or altered oximetry measurements displayed to the physicians in the ED. You either had a true number or the, oxym the oximeter in the altered arm was pre-manipulated in such a way that it was reading three percentage points higher above the true measurement up to a maximum of 100%. Okay, so either that or 3% higher. To enter the trial, they had to have, they had to be otherwise healthy and they had to have a true saturation, uh, which was hidden from people in triage of at least 88%. This was for safety reasons. Um, now, the, we picked this difference after the famous study with Mallory, who actually only had 2%, which had a huge effect on hospitalization, which you have just heard about. The emergency department colleagues were told that the oximeter reading may or may not reflect a true measurement, and that there was a 50% chance that it may have been altered by a small and physiologically insignificant amount. This is all they were, and they were told to basically look at the kit and do their usual practice, but you know, to take the number sort of with perhaps a grain of salt. Um, the main outcome was hospitalization, which was either admission within 72 hours to the hospital or treatment in the ED with oxygen, IV fluids, um, or various poisons, which some people still use, um, for more than six hours due to perceived respiratory distress. So what did we find? We found that in the true arm, the hospitalization rate was 41% versus 16 percentage point lower in the altered oximetry arm, which we felt was kind of critically important. Um, and after you controlled for various things, such as age, duration of illness, uh, triage sats, and so on, the odds ratio was 4.0. With exactly the same um, subsequent impact with respect to unscheduled visits um, to, the, uh, to EDs or to the primary care providers. So this study um, showed an association between oximetry and admissions, and we concluded that in children that have mild to moderate bronchiolitis, you should look at the child as opposed to the oximeter. That's not quite how it was worded. I was told not to word it that way, actually, but that's what I'm saying. Okay. Um, we are now doing an economic analysis of exactly the same study using the data from the oximetry study. So this is basically an assessment of the incremental cost of true, re true relative to altered oximetry to estimate the financial impact uh, of reduced detection of hypoxemia. And we are doing this from the healthcare perspective and from the societal perspective. And so the healthcare perspective, just sort of preliminary data, the cost per patient, uh, you get savings by about 800 Canadian dollars per patient uh, if you basically ignore the oximeter for practical purposes. And you get about, uh, you have to save about $900 per patient if you, um, from the societal perspective. So this is things like, um, you know, the, the, um, uh, f from the parents' point of view, how much, how much work they have used, uh, they have, um, uh, they have missed and so on and so on. So, and when you look at the frequency of bronchiolitis visits and hospitalizations, this can actually make a huge impact in terms of money. Um, 
So uh, I'm sure you have read about this study uh, by uh, Stephen Cunningham from the United Kingdom, where he uh, looked at the uh, patients uh, uh, and he changed his threshold. Remember I told you that in the UK they used to like 94% as a threshold for discharge. So he actually pre-manipulated the oximeters as well. So he basically was able to compare 94% and 90%. And this took place at eight UK hospitals uh, and 600 infants. And he found that the outcomes were uh, very, very comparable. They were basically the same. The main outcome for some reason was duration of cough, which was the same, but uh, all the healthcare utilization outcomes, which I think is very important in terms of length of stay and readmits and ICU uh, admissions and so on, were all very similar. So he concluded that the 90% threshold is, is safe and cost-effective. There was a big economic analysis of this study done as well for discharge of bronchiolitis. Okay, so we are now moving backwards from up to down. Um, and you are aware of one of your very own, Dr. McCullough, who published a study um, uh, in JAMA Pediatrics, and this was an inpatient study at four U.S. hospitals where he compared co continuous oximetry, where the oximeter was on all the time, versus just spot checks whenever the vital signs were scheduled to be done. And he found that there was no difference in the length of stay or uh, ICU admissions or other outcomes. And he conclude, concluded basically is that unless the child is um, like very ill, um, that the intermittent monitoring can be implemented safely. What is interesting about this study, I think it only applied to patients that had SARS already 90% or higher. So um, uh, I think it would be interesting to actually include all patients and see what, what actually happens. We have a study going on right now in our inpatient unit uh, doing basically something similar with the uh, continuous versus on, uh, uh, intermittent. And Dr. Cunningham wrote an editorial, actually, um, um, which I thought was kind of cute, where he said that parents have confidence looking after bronchiolitis at home, or some parents do, um, certainly not all, uh, without oximetry. And so, therefore, we should have some level of confidence as well. Um, okay, so a question had occurred to us very recently. You know, so you and I send patients home with bronchiolitis, don't we? So what happens to their oxy oxygen saturation after they have reached their house? So they are clinically well enough to go home. So what happens to them after discharge? So our fellow, Tanya Principi, actually performed a study. It took forever to do, by the way. The logistics of this study was quite something. And this was a prospective cohort study of 118 babies with bronchiolitis that were blessed by the physicians to depart home with bronchiolitis. So they were good enough to go home. And they went home with saturation monitors for the next 24 hours with the alarms and the display turned off. So the parents knew that this, they were instructed about how to keep it on. They got extra socks in case it fell off. Uh, yeah. Um, and uh, they, it had to be plugged in, and the battery only lasted for so long, and so on and so on. And then they, we arranged for a courier uh, after the, you know, the next night to send the equipment back to SickKids. And it was analyzed by our Department of Respiratory Therapy in terms of desaturations. Um, so the um, 
These saturations were defined as more than one minute of saturation of less than 90%. But we also defined saturations into major versus not. So if they had three or more of these events during period of monitoring, or it lasted for more than 10% of the monitoring time, or they had more than three minutes duration of um, desaturation, they were called major. So just so that you know that this was not just, you know, like one off for two seconds kind of thing. Uh, and the main outcome was actually the difference um, in the unscheduled visits for bronchiolitis within the next 72 hours for anywhere. Um, in those that did desaturate as per these definitions versus not. Right, so what did we find? So, we found that of the 118 infants, two-thirds, or 64%, have desaturated after discharge. Uh, some of them have desaturated well below 80 and even below 70, by the way. Um, and these were all patients that were blessed to depart home. Had they been in hospital, heaven forbid, you can imagine what would have happened. Okay, now we, of those that have desaturated, the vast majority were major as per definition that I have just told you, and about a quarter actually went below 70%. But everybody was happy because the alarms were off and <laughs> nobody knew. So yes, the parents were very happy, by the way, because they got extra, you know, contact with the, with the nurse and they got to ask questions and so, so it was, it was very nice dynamics um, and extra socks. For their, <laughs> for their feet. Um, so we found that the, 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 the rate of the revisits for bronchiolitis symptoms in those that desaturated were 24% and in those that did not was 26%. So it was virtually identical. So, so much for that. So, um, and they had identical delayed hospitalization rate. It was very low, by the way. It was something like 2 or 3% in those that desaturated versus those that did not. So basically the idea was that desaturations are very common, you know, it's two-thirds, and they do not appear to predict the revisits, do they? So this is what we concluded, that desaturations are common, that they did not lead to escalation of care, and they did not cause more unscheduled visits or rehospitalizations. So this is at home. So, okay, so the question is, what, somebody is going to bring up the issue of the brain, I'm sure. So what is it that we do not know? So first of all, we do not know if actually um, oximetry produces any measurable benefit uh, due to prevention of escalation of care. Um, and somebody is going to say that you know, perhaps there is a long-term benefit by preventing cognitive issues in children that have dropped into the 80s, and perhaps the patients that desaturate at home will not make it into Harvard or um, other important universities. Um, now, having said all that, um, so far the evidence that we do have, I don't think that there ever will be a study in bronchiolitis to address that issue, but that's sort of beside the point. But the chronic conditions that are associated with chronic hypoxemia, and chronic hypoxemia is the one that you really should worry about, such as the one with congenital heart disease, pulmonary hypertension, and so on. These are not comparable to healthy kids with bronchiolitis, which usually lasts for a week or two. We also know that obstructive sleep apnea and asthma with periodic hypoxia is not detrimental, does not have a detrimental effect on long-term cognitive outcomes. 
So this is actually highly unlikely, but as I said, I think that if you do truly believe it, I don't think there will be a study ever in your life to disprove it. Oximetry may not be 100%, maybe safe is not the right word, but it may not be really beneficial. So I've already told you that it's associated with hospitalizations and things happen in hospital. You know, babies get kidnapped. They get nice, they get nasty infections. There is adverse, there is adverse events during every hospital. They get the wrong, the wrong drugs. They get, they, they fall off beds. Various things happen to you in hospital, which are not always very desirable, right? Um, and because you measure oximetry, they stay in for even longer, as Alan Schroeder uh, and others have actually demonstrated. Um, and these hospitalizations are very common. I've already told you that Dr. Cunningham did the economic analysis as well. And he actually found in the study I presented the nine about 320 British pounds per patient by using 90% threshold versus 92, versus 94. So it's actually also quite a bit of money savings. And there's actually some evidence that oxygen may not be always 100% good for you, that it may contribute to atelectasis and heaven knows what else. I don't really know much about it. Maybe some of you know a little bit more, but you know, any drug is. So the question is, what do we do in the future? Um, so um, we probably should be judicious in limiting our use of oximetry to the patients who are sick. So um, I'm going to, um, so certainly in the inpatient situation, unless there is clinical concern, the spot checks appear to be safe in the vast majority of patients. And if there is no clinical concern, then the question of course is should the patient go home? That's sort of kind of another thing. Um, in the emergency department, we have actually stopped doing routine saturations in patients that have moderate bronchiolitis. And unless the physician asks for the saturation or unless the patient is clearly in respiratory distress, the saturation does not get done. And we are discouraging our nurses to use it when the child is asleep because it can lead to scenarios such as the one I have mentioned at the beginning. And then I wanted to leave you with your one final thought, and that is that do we need any oxygen saturation threshold at all? Like, do we truly, you know, um, what exactly, do we need one? Because we don't have a threshold for other vital signs. Um, and um, I think that may be the end of my presentation. So um, now we can have a discussion about oximetry or otherwise. my attending when I was an intern way back in the day, and I've confirmed it with Dr. Hoffer because she was in residency with me, that he used to run around the unit and tear the oximetry off oh, in the okay. 90s and tell us to look at the you-know-what patient instead of the you-know-what monitor. Very good, yes. One of the pushbacks that I remember that he got was because of our nursing colleagues, and I'm wondering yes. if there's literature from our nursing colleagues. Seattle Children's at that time changed their nursing ratios and changed their staffing so that nurses were not doing direct assessments of our patients. Yes, 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 yes. It was nursing assistants who did not have clinical assessment skills. So I'm wondering if our nursing colleagues are feeling the same pressure we are or if there's literature from the nursing world. I must confess I am not familiar very well with the nursing literature. Having said that, I do know that um, 
uh, in, the, in the past, when I read about these papers about oximetry, that oximetry has been called a surrogate babysitter. Um, and so this is basically what happens is that when you are busy and you are just sort of looking at, you, know, you have a million other tasks to do, is that it keeps track of the status, it quantifies the status for you um, uh, so that you do not have to go in and look at the patient. So that is very well, I can fully understand that pushback. Having said that, I think that if you, if you are truly concerned about a patient, you probably should be looking at them so of, every so often clinically, right? I mean, if you have a sick bronchiolytic, they should probably go there every hour, right? Or maybe every two hours, I don't know what your routine is, depending on the kit, and look, look at the patient. And it really doesn't matter because, as I said, it can be 100%, but the patient can actually be getting into trouble, at least to some degree. So I guess some of it is I, I sympathize with the nursing colleagues, and I, I can fully get the mentality. I really can. But I think that it's a question of education and just sort of, you know, speaking to the administrators and say, look, we need these nurses to, you know, to look after the patients because they, they could crash. And if you have a young bronch, especially the young babies, they can actually crash very, very quickly with bronchiolitis, right? So it should not be reassuring just because the saturation is acceptable. Yeah, no, but I can, I, I can get that. So, Kathy, there's a, there's a, and this is probably three years old now, but um, in terms of a, a liver view, there's a single study in the adult literature comparing units with physiologic monitoring, um, but that allow for the same parameters with units without. And uh, there was actually increased, um, in, in, increased mortality, increased hurt calls, that type of thing, in, um, in the unit with the monitor. And this is a, a specific to the nursing literature. There's not a lot of studies, but that one, that one gets cited frequently you know, oh, in the alarm fatigue literature. And, you know, the, the groups of people that are working hard on how to best manage alarms. So that, that, that hypothesis that an alarm on a patient allows you to stop looking at this yes. um, has not been supported in the literature, and there's a single study that would suggest that it's maybe false. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I can see, I can see their mentality. It's sort of the same thing as you know, treating asthmatics with nebulizers versus MDIs, uh, because you know, you put on the nebulizer for the next 20 minutes and you sort of depart. The fact that they scream, nothing gets into the lungs, doesn't that completely escapes them? And 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 there is more side effects. And we are giving a talk at 12 about that, by the way. But uh, but the, the, that's sort of been initially the pushback from our nurses in the ED as well. Uh, whereas with the MDI, you have to kind of educate them, and it takes much shorter period of time. You get fewer side effects, more gets into the lung, but it's exactly the same mentality. It's less work. Yeah, basically, that's what it is. Dr. Coffey, not to have you speak for the nursing profession, but Kathy's observation that perhaps maybe not correlation, but... Uh, at the same time as monitoring became more available, but perhaps administrators um, decreased nursing ratios, is that an observation you've seen on your career? She um, is our director of nursing education and research. I think that we do have to be careful about how we use technology and that the best thing is to look at the patient and when I was teaching, Anecdotally, oftentimes the monitor would fall off and be on the bed and have an 87 or 88 percent. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Take the monitor off, lay it on the bed, and say to the students, "Oh, look, here's the saturation." You know, and it's not on the patient. So I think the the mantra of looking at the patient. Is yes, that's the key. And sometimes we can be molded into a false security. No, absolutely. 
piece of technology. I think it's a piece like you had said in one of your slides so eloquently that I'm not going to be able to paraphrase well, but to use it as a tool and not to have it be the only thing that drives our decision making, but to look at the patient. Yeah. There are kids with 100% saturation rate that can crash. Who are quite sick. And, and, you know, if you just use that tool. As far as the staffing piece, I think we always have to be really cognizant of the fact that we don't want to rely on technology. Nothing replaces the nurse at the bedside. To yes. So no, absolutely. We have to be really careful about keeping that front and center when we think about how we care for our patients. So I wonder about when you're showing your first cases, the, the, another member of the care triad. So in this sophisticated consumer age, in, you've described that you don't use oxygen saturations in the emergency department. How much pushback from parents have you experienced who, are, who might expect a number, or do they not expect that? Yeah, we have not actually had any pushback at all. No, no, we, have, we truly have not. No, uh, the, 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 the time that we get into trouble with the parents is that when the child, and we have had this obviously happen be before, um, in the previous era when we used oximetry a lot more frequently and it was stuck on the finger at night and the child asleep and there was this alarms going and the question is what do you do with the kid because the saturation is low and the child looks good. And this is where they start questioning you. They say, oh, what does this number mean? And, you know, how do you interpret that? And this is loud. Does, is it bad? And, you know, is he going to die? And th this sort of thing. Yeah, but in terms of otherwise oxymoron, no, we haven't had any. We haven't had any problem. Yeah. Sure. Uh, Dr. Wright, Peter. And then Dr. Rowan. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I'm curious how you make decisions about supplemental oxygen without using oxygen saturation. Okay, so those are usually sick kids. So if someone does have, you know, marked chest retractions and, you know, they're obviously uncomfortable, they are not feeding, and the child is in, and there's obviously some clinical judgment as to what is significant respiratory discharge oximeter. So that's not to say that we have oximetry in the emergency department. And then if it's below 90%, um, or sometimes even slightly above, for that matter. I mean, it really depends on the physician. Uh, they do get oxygen. So it really is correlated with the, with, the, with the distress, with the degree of distress. And then those patients remain on the saturation monitor because you want them at somewhere around 94 95% on the oxygen because you have to titrate the oxygen. So that's a different subgroup. But... You know, 90% of the kids that come in do not belong to that category. They have a respiratory rate, like 50, and they have mild retractions, and they are feeding. None of them feeds normally. This is the other concept that I think we need to educate people about, that bronchiolitis by definition, because the nose gets plugged up. None of them have normal feeding patterns, right? So, but as long as they can hydrate themselves, it's not, it's not an issue. But once you, clinically, once you are clinically concerned about it, they do get a start. So it's not that we are completely off oximetry. Does, does that answer your question? Yes. Mm -hmm. As in a, a different disease process, so that's asthma, established asthma in the school-aged child. Is it and asthma, oximetry, and how affects our clinical judgment in so that's a little bit easier. I think that because, so first of all, they are over the age of one by definition, and uh, we had a talk about preschool asthma, actually, which is a highly controversial topic, and there is some update. So we have a talk at 12 o'clock about that very topic. So it's a little bit easier because they are older kids, and usually, clinically speaking, once you have a SAT, 
that even approaches 90% and the child is in distress, you kind of have to take it seriously. There are, so clinically speaking, there are not very many asthmatics who are, uh, who have SATs around 90% who are actually looking wonderful. And this is awake. Does that make sense? It's, I think it's a different disease and it's a different process. And so, you know, if you have someone who is in, in respiratory distress, if, especially after steroids, especially after the first couple of hours, most of them end up with some higher, you know, like IV mag or something like that, and you have to kind of consider for slightly more extended state. But it's a different, it's a different thinking process. Yeah. I was just curious in the study where the um, infants were sent home with the pulse oximetry monitoring, and you were talking about how infants or children desaturated to, you know, seventy percent, eighty percent. When you analyze the data, were you able to tell that those were accurate readings? Yes. So, yeah, so, so we have actually, yes. Yeah, so I actually, I can't remember the exact wording, but because that, that actually came up at the journal level in terms of, um, in terms of what kind of software that was and what it analyzed it, and it only analyzed the correct readings, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I would have to actually point you to the publication itself because I was, somebody else wrote the line for me. <laughs> Uh, yes, somebody who knew more about the software, that I should put it that way. But yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. Did that issue basically um, convince the audience? <laughs> the, religion is, the religion is now. The religion is now? Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, at the risk of showing how little I know about the whole field. Um, <laughs> I'll ask a question. I don't know, I don't know anything either, but that's okay. <laughs> there, there are, uh, for example, some studies in the newborn literature which show that a relatively small difference in the oxygen saturation that you're aiming for did have a difference in outcome. And although there's controversy as to what's the best range to aim for, you know, you, you have uh, problems on each side, but uh, uh, the difference between 92 and 94% isn't strictly within the margin of error of the machine because the 92 has a range of its own. Yes. The 94 has a yes, so it could be double. You know, you, you are in different regions with both of those, and so uh, this is a different population. Yes, well, I think that's it. And I just wonder what things about this would make that, uh, you know, not apply to this situation. I don't know. <laughs> I, I truly, no. It's different population. Yeah, it's, it's, a it's, it's a completely, you know, these are previously, this, these are healthy kids. So we have actually excluded kids with any comorbidity. So if they were actually preemies, the below, I don't know what, gestational age, and uh, if they had like, his, you know, chronic lung disease, or any, which many preemies do have, um, uh, that's a different, completely different population. So that's not, you know, if we get a two-month-old bronchiolytic who, whose due date was yesterday, uh, that's a bit, that, that's managed with a little bit. They, they do get oximetry, and they probably get admitted, by the way, because they were due yesterday. So that's an entirely, regardless of SAT, so that's an entirely different thing. It's, you know, one has to use a little bit of common sense there. But, but I think it's a different population is the answer to your, the, you know, sorry, that may not be answer your question. So where is the, where's the new conference? I train G. I train G. It's a joint PDE um, conference. 
So for those who want to hear about another common uh, pediatric condition, um, it's at Noonan Auditorium G. I know there's Dr. Conroy's session at, at Noonan Auditorium H, and I don't know if there'll be much news there, but, but some good programming at Noonan. It occurs to me, based on the response at the beginning of the session, that I... Um, and our little place feels a little bit less innocent today than it might have yesterday morning. And, and I just only hope that we work hard to make sure that the kids don't feel any less safe or secure than they always have in our care. So, um, have a good day, everybody. Don't forget to